Aboru boye baba lawo Iboru boye Welcome to Lakura Podcast, Decolonizing Latinx Health and Reclaiming Traditional Healing. This is your host, Francisca Porches Coronado. Lakura Podcast is a project of Mi Gente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lakura Podcast. I have somebody super special, Marisa Franco, who many of you probably already know. And maybe some of you don't, so it could be a good introduction. So a little bit about Marisa is she is a organizer, rebel rouser. Some people call her advocate. I don't know if she'd ever call herself that. Uh, but definitely like one of those, you know, gangster community organizer. And that's her lineage. And that is her school of thought and spirit and... um and a lot of her work has centered around Arizona, where she was born, and also New York and California. And right now, she is the director and co-founder of Mi Gente. This podcast, La Cura Podcast, in case you had not noticed, it's been mentioned quite a bit, but if you're new to it, um, La Cura Podcast is a project of Mi Gente, and Mi Gente is an online organizing hub for Latinx and Chicanas activists and, and organizations across the country. And so one of the most beautiful, powerful pieces of work um, that Marisa engaged in over the past, over many years, actually, was the Not One More Deportation Campaign, um, which was recognized in 2014 by the National Organizing Institute as the Campaign of the Year. And um, she's done a whole lot of work, like I said, in New York and California that um, we're grateful for. Um, because it's kind of brought her to this point where uh, Mi Gente has been birthed and it has actually produced and manifested a lot of beautiful things and it continues to grow. Um, so welcome to La Cura, Marisa. Thank you for having me. And one last thing about Marisa is that she is one of my best friends. We've actually known each other since 19... <laughs> <laughs> Since a long time ago, yes, I know. I'm outing my our age. Since 1999, um, she, yeah, I, I literally met her at a Mecha meeting at Arizona State University, <laughs> uh, where uh, her priority in organizing me was to a party. <laughs> and I feel like that still would probably be her way of organizing me to anything. <laughs> Hey, it works. <laughs> it really does. It really does. And it did work. And here I am. Um, so, and actually, that's kind of how she organized me into this Lagura project as well. Um, think over a beer. Really good to have you on. Marisa and I were actually shooting the shit. And we thought this was a good idea because we've been in conversation, actually, as the world as this country was sort of erupting with a Black-led uprising. Um, and we had a really great conversation uh, about just the role of Mi Gente and our role, I think, as like seasoned, you know, movement folks, organizers. Um, and so I thought, hey, let's actually have a conversation about the San La Cura for all those reasons and more. And so I guess I want to start, Marisa, with maybe having you tell us just a tiny bit more about Mi Gente um, and then just how this podcast came about beyond you telling me uh, you should do it over a beer and why. <laughs> yes. Um, beer works sometimes. Um, well, before, I, I just want to take a little bit just to give you props, give you your propers, Francisca, for taking this project on and, and growing it so beautifully. Um, I think that your voice, your perspective, and the, the, the tapestry that you've woven of voices, people, perspective, offerings is so needed for our gente in this time. And just so y'all know, Francisca hadn't done, you know, audio podcasts before, and you just have taken it on and juggling so much, you know, creating new projects, um, 
being a mother, becoming a, a, a birthing a new baby in this time, um, and doing, you know, obviously the latest round under the Rona, um, you've just, you've just done such amazing work and it has been so valuable and needed and, and really, um, really helps me to be a more holistic, um, organization. So, um, thank you. Um, so mi gente is, is a, it's an organization made up of Latinx and Chicanx people. Um, you know, and our people include organizers, activists, creatives, media makers, you know, construction workers, teachers, doctors, domestic workers, un poquito de todo, pero, um, you know, what brings people together beyond being Latino is this, this notion that we need to, we need to come together. We need to take collective action. Um, and we need to do that in a way that is explicit about the fact that our fates are tied with other communities and explicit about the fact that our community in and of itself has an array of identities and diversities and, and names and recognizes the ways in which those things have been hidden um, and the way that we hide them. Um, so when we talk about it, it's often very much like me and this pro-Black, pro-LGBTQ, pro-Pachamama, pro-immigrant, pro-worker, um, because it's very much trying to summon that, that, you know, oftentimes Latino is like a flattening identity um, that kind of hides all these other things. And it's actually like, no, we, we can actually come together across a very diverse set of people um, and, and, and really look at it from a, a more of a pluralistic position. Um, so that's the who. And then in terms of the what, um, you know, very explicit about organizing and fighting campaigns around issues that matter, that are impacting our, our communities um, and building with, building with communities across sectors, across region, across, um, you know, different differences that might exist. And we've done that like in a digital way and a, in a, you know, old school grassroots in person in real life way. Um, I'm proud that like we've done, we've been on the front lines of the battles around immigration of our time um, that we've been on the, on like on point and like coming correct and on the question of, of Puerto Rico and the colonial status of the Island that we've been able to, um, you know, help spur projects like this one, both in the sense of like media making, but also the question of becoming whole and healing. Um, and then also, you know, have done uh, a, a electoral work. Our first endorsement was Stacey Abrams uh, running for governor in the state of Georgia. That means a lot. I think for me, that means a lot. And I think the first we're in five year five. And for me, um, when I think about like on a very basic level, like what are we trying what were we trying to do? Um, we were trying always to say, why? Why do we exist? Why are we here? Why is this the right time? Why us? Why now? And then the second thing is showing people who we are um, as best we can, right? Um, there's always things that could be better. But, um, you know, there's there's been, like, for me, like, a, a, an intentionality behind that. And, um, and yeah, so... I I'll stop there. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I feel like I was there at the inception of Mi Gente, even just like the kind of like idea of Mi Gente in your head. And then now it's, it's like grown into this organization five years later. And what do you think? Two questions um, about it. One is like, what has been the most surprising thing um for you that you might have not even thought about or expected uh five years later that you've learned and then two um what is one like important um spiritual uh m you know spiritual maybe political thing that you're grappling with that you hope um you can answer for yourself. I think as it continues to, you know, uh, manifest and, 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 and generate um, and kind of grow into its, what it's supposed to be and what it, it continues to be. 
So there's been a lot of surprises along the way for sure. Um, one thing I'll say like an external and an internal. So the external um, is that we, we were, you know, the organization was basically born and the ascension of Trump. And it was also born, I think it's important to note, in I think the, you know, the greatest resurgence at the time of black liberation or black freedom movement in at least my lifetime. Um, and I remember <clears throat> part of the, the, the why was that this perspective for me became clear in Arizona in 2010 with the passage of SB 1070, because at the time, you know, there had been years, a, su a succession of propositions and laws that had been, you know, propositions passed by ballot initiatives or laws passed by the state legislature that were attacking um, in particular immigrants. And, and 1070 was like the, you know, the Ramol Vaso. It was the thing that kind of tipped things over and people really reacted. But the backdrop, um, they used to talk about, um, there was this, I always remember this article and I still sometimes Google it and I can't find it, but it's called the Browns versus the Grays. And so it noted that in Arizona around that time, the you had both the largest amount of white people over the age of 65, because a lot of people come here to retire from the Midwest. <laughs> and then you had the greatest number of, um, in particular, brown folks under the age of 18. And to me, what was indicative was like, this is not an anomaly. Um, Arpaio, all these clowns, they are a foreshadowing because this trend is happening in places across the country because the demographic trends tell us that, you know, we're told over and over again, right, that the population, who, who it is, what people look like, what their lineage is, well, is shifting. And it's not going to be a majority white country at some point. And being a bit of a historian nerd, or maybe just, you know, having a clue of how white supremacy works, <laughs> you know, and I know that in all instances where um, there has been a, a step forward for human rights, for civil rights, for liberation, lo que sea, it is met with, it is fought. And even when we win, the backlash is bloody. The backlash is staggering and it's, um, you know, it's a motherfucker. <laughs> yep. So to me, it was like, to me, it was like, oh, there's, you know, you just see it. You could see it in the air. Like you could kind of feel it in the air, right? That there was, you know, social change. There was cultural change. You, you're just thinking about um, with respect to, for example, in our lifetimes, queer culture and, and how, um, you know, LGBTQ people are seen. Um, it by no means fixed, by no means, but there has certainly been a dramatic shift. So you're seeing all this, you know, you have then all these different social movements. You have, you know, the, the culture of the country in some ways is changing. And to me, it was like, oof, this is going to be a backlash of epic proportions. Um, and it will be, it will be ugly and it's not going to happen. It's going to be a sustained protracted um battle um and that was a lot of the reason why you know was like there is very little organization in the latino community and we we're walking into a hurricane mm. with an umbrella <laughs> and we need to be able to not only protect ourselves and fight on the issues you know that we're facing but also how are we showing up broadly how are we showing up in the broader multi you know, multi-issue, multi-racial, multinational movement for justice. And we have to, we have to, you know, you can't show up to the potluck without mm. a plate. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to bring? <laughs> <laughs> so I've been really surprised at how kind of, how much that's really played out and the virality and the veracity of like flashpoints, right? And it's our side, their side, our side, their side. And it's, it's, it's a little bit sometimes scary and it's like disorienting and, and obviously many of us are very tired, but <clears throat> it's been surprising how much that's 
come to be in, in short order. Um, the other thing on the internal that I'll just say is that part of, um, you know, it's just sometimes like, yeah, in the Latino, it can be really frustrating because you kind of see, you know, people coming all kind of ways. Oh, yes. <laughs> and sometimes saying whack, whack things, you know. And I felt like there was this like, nah, we got to create something. So people kind of let, let's create something that we can organize people so we can all <laughs> act right, you know, at the very least. And the surprising and like pleasant surprise is that, yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of whack shit and a lot of, pe- of our people have really ingested the trash of our oppressors um, and spit it back out. But there are a lot of people that, you know, want to do good, that want to be on the right side. They might not have all the language. They might not have all the, you know, movement woke degrees. Um, and then, but more than anything, they don't have anywhere to go. So they just mouth off probably to their friends and family. But basically what I found is like, I actually think there's a lot more um, folks that are ready to throw down than, than I think was imagined. Um, it's just been more of a question of how, where, como, you know, but that's been the pleasant surprise is that <clears throat> there's actually a great deal of interest um, and desire Um the issue has been that we're scattered and we don't have we don't have a place all the time to be able to do that and, and don't know where and how. Right. It's being like all across the country. And also I think the way that the mi gente has been set up is like let a million flowers bloom moments or, you know, structures and then also like very clear sense of how to throw down when flashpoints um occur the ones that you're talking about and then the last one i think is around or the last way in which i've seen it is like you know we're building like como hormiguitas like little by little bit by bit um certain either campaigns like no tech for ice or other sort of curriculum or like deepening people's understanding and really creating um you know just like the broader uh possible like what a broader campaign could be for possibilities what's one of the things right now like you know 2020 on the eve of your birthday which is next week june 30th everybody (laughs) that you're like sitting in wonder about which wonder is a beautiful thing i think all of us need to gift ourselves more wonder and create more space for wonder but i know that's like your natural state of being. Um, so just curious where you're at with that. I, well, I've been writing this week. I've been trying to get out this, this piece about um, Latinos relationship to this moment around defunding police. And um, <laughs> I was, you know, cruising around on the internet and I saw this um, low rider car show. Um, there was images or like a lowrider cruise, pues. And they, it was for Black Lives Matter. And I was so, it just like, it, it was just such a like warm, wonderful feeling to see that. Um, and I think that kind of is like a snapshot of what's really been making me feel like a fire. Um, and it makes me, you know, mm-hmm. like spin in circles sometimes. But I I think there's this, there's, I can be frustrated. I can be angry. I can be like, where the hell y'all been? Pero there is this opening um, that, that exists with relationship to policing in this country that people are taking note and, and um, it shouldn't, <laughs> it shouldn't take it shouldn't take a case as egregious as George Floyd or Breonna Taylor um, to cause this. But if it's, if it's an opportunity, we have to take it. And, and I think there's so much potential to engage in conversation and move collectively in support of, of bold transformational change with respect to how our communities are policed. Um, and whether policing should exist at all in that in the way that we understand it. Um, and I think the thing that makes me particularly excited is that 
to interrogate that and and to find one's relationship to that. I think, you know, coming back to the, you know, the focus of some of the work you do and some of the things that you all have discussed on this podcast is the 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 internal kind of examination um and the spiritual piece of it um and confronting you know confronting the yeah the coping mechanisms the survival mechanisms the justifications that we tell ourselves so that we can sleep at night and it really forces us to unpack that and 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 really ask ourselves like is this serving me is this serving my family is this serving my community there's a case that is coming to light in Tucson, Arizona, where this um, where this young man um, Adrian was died was killed by police two months ago. Um, his family called the police to get help with him. Um, they said he was behaving erratically, and they came in there like gangbusters, you know. And um, there's a video um, of what happened. You know, they didn't de-escalate the situation. They they killed them. And, you know, I was agitating myself about it. And I was like, it's just these ways that our community and our families are conditioned. Like, I was like, almost like, yo, it's como like when you're a kid, you know. And obviously, there's all kinds of different families. So, um, but as an example, it's like, you know, I feel like I've seen or heard when people are like kids are acting out and like the mom is like vas a ver si no le paras if you don't stop it I'm gonna tell your dad when he comes home from work you know vas a ver vas a ver and you can insert for dad probably a host of other things but basically like if you don't cut it out I'm gonna call the enforcer I'm gonna call the cucuya on you mm-hmm. you know and like there's this way where yeah. like get get pinche like I don't it like gave me this sense of like agony of what his family must feel that like there is this way that that communities and families and our people have been kind of like conditioned that like that once you get older the vas a ver it does no longer becomes yeah. calling your pops or calling this person it's calling the cops and what our community yes. needs to understand is that calling the cops could lead to calamity um of this kind because it is not rooted in love. It's not even rooted in humanity. Um, let's talk about, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to disparage this person's humanity because uh, they're saying he was on drugs. But like, let's, how is this not a race issue with for the last few years, we talk about the opioid crisis and you see these images of folks um, who are in dire straits and, and, it is called, it is framed, and it is treated as a public health crisis. And you know what? It should be. I am not asking for those folks to be criminalized or brutalized or killed. I'm asking for some of the same treatment and grace and recognition for our people so that when someone is going through that kind of moment, um, that they are not treated like animals and they are not um, they're not given any kind of you know room or space um, and that it's not treated for what it is, which is a public health, a, a, a health issue. Um, it is, it is clear that it, it is documented. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, that's, that's on my mind. And those are the things that when I think about, wow, what is possible in this time, it's a heavy lift. It's exhausting to think about. And I'm sure you feel that too, because it is so deep, but like, there are these moments where you can actually get there that you can, there's a way to actually access that. Um, and if we're able to both show up in the moment on the streets, in the points of decision, at the points of pain, at the points of, you know, where the, 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 you know, where this is all going to play out in the in the world and also, you know, spark, cohere, guide, um, create space for the internal examination that's to me deeply exciting um, and transformational because at the end of the day, I am, I am a pinche believer in organizing and, and, you know, that, that element. Um, But it's not always about policy. Um, The, the Mm -hmm. transformation that happens in individuals, um, policies can be repealed. They can be this, they can be that. Lo que, lo que la gente, la transformación 
interna and the dignity when we reclaim it, our self-determination when we reclaim it is very difficult to take it away. And so there's an humanity, you know, and so some of this stuff really presents opportunity for us to reclaim our humanity. Um, and I think that's foundational to any real transformational political work that we can do. Well, that's definitely a, a very um, profound question to sit with. And I think something that uh, folks that I love and admire are also sitting with, and I think a whole movement right now, right? It's like, we started a whole, because of this Black-led uprising over the last month or three weeks, there is, at the center of it, is what do systems of care look like? I'm totally misquoting, but there is there is this, this quote that's kind of floating around the social media that's like, you know, it's important to get rid of your, and I'm misquoting it, but like important to get rid of, of the cop in your head and in your heart right? Um, as well as literally defunding police. And I think that that's a really big one. At a cellular level, uh, we have now like a spiritual mandate and we've had it, but it's kind of in our face now at the cellular level um, where we are needing to truly work to undo and to embody a whole different um, set of values. We believe it. We believe some of the stuff and then we also need to embody it. And, um, and I think that's a, you know, exactly what you and I were talking about mm -hmm. a week ago where I've seen um, for their mental health issues are 16 times more likely to be killed by police. Mm -hmm. And so in the 80s, when Reagan got rid of all of our mental health infrastructures, um, treatment centers, not that they were great. I mean, they were built on some real, you know, backward, racist, patriarchal, pathologizing sort of philosophy. But they were still mental health treatment centers versus prisons. And so he got rid of all that and invested in the prison system and in more police and the drug war. And so now that we have an opportunity to potentially rebuild what that mental health system could look like, how do we center humans? How do we center healing? How do we center transformation? Is it is a really big question. I think we're as a movement as a whole, we're gonna have to be grappling with that. And I'm really excited. I'm really excited about the conversation and how, you know, these moments of crisis accelerate certain questions. And I think we have we literally are staring into the face of that particular universal spiritual mandate for us to grapple with that. And, and I think for us as Latinos, like that's the other thing. Like I think of my abuelo and my abuela, my tata, my nana, we were talking about our families last week. You know, they were so much more closer to colonialism than we were. And I literally mean like in years, right? My abuela, my tatarabuela, my, bis my bisabuela, my tatarabuela. Like these are like four generations down where it's like some of the stories that I hear, I'm like, damn, the, the vas a ver stuff um, is real. Like <laughs> there is so much closer to what colonialism looked like for indigenous people and how they related to punishment. Literally the culture of colonialism is the culture of punishment. And it's it's literally in us and it's inherited and it's the way we think from punishing ourselves in the worst kinds of ways mm -hmm. uh, and being so judgmental to them punishing others and from the most intimate relationships that we have to then on scale, like as a whole community and on scale. And I think that is something that we have to couple with our own understanding of the colonial legacy that this has had on us and that if you have anybody in your family who was ever poor, <laughs> who was ever not white, or who was ever in a, a territory that was colonized, then you have this legacy. And it's something that you will have to and we need to grapple with. But the other thing is like, it has to go beyond, and we know this, and this is the thing we were grump, I was grumpy about for sure last week. I was like, it has to be beyond the memes on social media, which are driving me nuts. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, what does that actual work look like? Because mm -hmm. people patting themselves on the back on social media being like, 
call out your family or stop being anti-black or, you know, Latinos for, for Black Lives Matter is fucked up. Like there's all of that, but it's like, what's the work that we're doing on the ground? What's the work that we're doing internally? And to me, that's the thing that's got me kind of like in an old organizer grumpy state sometimes where I'm like frustrated. It's like, who are you talking to? What's the work you're doing, you know, daily? And, and, and what's the work that you're doing in community? What does that look like? How do we begin? You know, but anyway, that's, that was, that's been my, my sort of like, yeah frustration and i'm curious where you're at because you're we have there's a much bigger organization that's been dealing with that coming at us you know i mean i have so much to say (laughs) but it's kind of like two buckets so all the stuff you're naming both like whether it's like policing as a system like all the different elements of what you're talking about the, the thread line is that in all of that there are no easy answers and at the same time there's probably nothing else that is more righteous than tackling some of these things. With respect to Latinx, Chicanx people, um, I think one of the things that has been um, such such a factor as, you know, you talked about colonialism, you know, particularly I would say for, I think sharply, and I can speak to this because, you know, I was born in Arizona, you know, so this is maybe more my, my Chicano side, you know, talking, but, you know, we are told, um, we are told repeatedly and from a very early age that we are of a people that lost history. That is what we see over and over again. And sometimes it's whispered, sometimes it's inferred, sometimes it's, it's, thrown in your face in, in a screaming spitball ball of rage. Um, so to me, there's just the, the level of, you know, the level of amnesia and disassociation that like, it, it's just like there is a toolbox of coping mechanisms of survival mechanisms. Like we can look at it from the very basis of like, <laughs> There's a way where sometimes I see like the like Latino Trumpers and I'm like, me da cosa, porque like I almost, and, and not to, and not to say that's the only reason, not to say this is the only reason people end up in those situations, but like, I always think of Raza that like, they like to be on the winning team. They just like to, it's that, it's that cousin that, you know, two years ago, they're Patriots fans and then 10 years ago they were 49ers fans <laughs> when the NFL was something <laughs> to do with fuck the NFL también pero you know it's like there is this element of like people just don't want to be on the losing team well why because they want to be on the winning team because we've always been fucking told that you're a loser who cares who you're from who cares who your people are um and when you look at like and then just how profound that is and that and that's obviously manifest in other communities you know um like what are the behaviors that that are associated when people really internalize that right and so it's very critical in my opinion in order to um in order to to come back to life come back to ourselves there is the unlearning that we have to do and there is the remembering that we have to do and so you and I um you know we're jamming out last week on this little ejercicio, so maybe we can release it with this episode. But, you know, one of the most basic critical things that we could all be doing right now is talking about our our, our lineage. Where do we come from? You know, what what, are your, where, what land are you from? What did your people do? You know, what are the stories associated? And and even just saying those things out loud and, and having them come to life, like they don't have to be packed away. They don't have to be forgotten and I think that it's also from a political place, I think, helpful for all of us to understand, to help us position in terms of what is our stand in relationship to the issues of our time. Um, because, you know, I, maybe it's because I'm a Cancerian, <laughs> my son's side is a kid to be like, you know, history matters, <laughs> lineage matters. Um, if you don't know where you're from, you don't know where you're at. I, I do believe that. And, um, 
what colonization has done is just taken all of our histories, despite the fact that we come from, we come from beautiful people. We come from complicated people. We come from um, peoples that have done amazing shit and they've essentially tried to just sweep it all into the dustbin of history. And it's up to us to, to pick through that and to fucking flip that, flip it over. Um, and, and, and be able to like, see it, see it and see it and, and see ourselves in it. Um, and, you know, you talked about, um, and, and so that, I guess that, that work is really important. And then, you know, the other part you were talking about is just like all the different ways in which we have to almost that piece of unlearning, there is something for everyone. Like it's a very, very heavy lift. It is profound because it is literally like inundated it's in our, it's in our like circuitry and it's on a cellular level, as you say. Um, but the other side, the way to look at it that maybe is not so overwhelming is that you don't have to be an organizer to, to help reconstruct and rebuild and rewire and reconnect. This is something that healers can do. It's something that educators can do. It's something that mothers can do that nanas can do. It's something that carpenters can do, like, because it's literally that level of remaking and reshaping that's needed. Um, and that is something I think kind of going to your, the, what you were talking about is like, to me, it's very, very, very important that there is a level of introspection and reflection and examination, but we can't just stay in our heads. Um, we can't intellectualize this. We can't, we can't think our way through this. And the, so the doing the, like, literally what is the new muscle memory that we're creating um, is absolutely critical in this time. Um, and it's just as much campaigning and all this stuff as it is like that moment when someone's not well, um, that, that what does it mean to not say, Vas a ver, o le, o voy a llamarle la chota. like that, that like changing that muscle memory is also the work we need to do. And that is just as important as passing a policy or, you know, combating what the budget is going to be, which is also very important, but esas cosas se tienen que hacer las dos. And it's very, and, and we need to understand that those are both part of the work. I have other stuff to say about the perform the, the woke stuff, but I'll see if you want to respond to that. <laughs> I definitely want to hear the woke stuff. Um, yeah, I just want to affirm, I think, you know, a lot of my work the past three years has been rooted in the belief that we're able to embody um, our own liberation. Mm. And Erica Higgins of the Black Panther Party, I heard this recently, she said, um, freedom is also an inside job. Mm. And and I, I wholeheartedly believe that because I've seen it. Like I've seen it. I've seen I've seen it as an organizer, right? I've seen it as an organizer. And again, you don't have to organize, but when you work really closely with people that have been through hell, um, both who have been imprisoned or who have been um, severely traumatized. Both they're either literally have their, their bodies have the scars to show it or their spirits do and who have found renewed purpose in their experience and in being able to be more practiced in and a healthy sort of relationship to a lot of things, including movement, then, you know, then it's real. And I think what you're saying also reminds me of just this, this question or this, this, this conversation of erasure that I think native American people in this country have been bringing up for years now around the way that erasure happens, both, at the census level, which is, they call it paper genocide. Like you just don't exist <laughs> uh, to erasure of stories, yeah. erasure of who are you? And if you just, for all of us who haven't asked ourselves more of that, who have just said, I'm just, you know, an orphan. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> but it's like, no, like that's actually a lie. You know, we, we're not orphans. The DNA is in us like erasure and like you've called it amnesia. And 
there is a cellular remembering that we also can do that I, I wholeheartedly believe in. And I think that, you know, our ancestors, however, even if we don't have a good relationship with maybe the last generation of the generation before that, there are much, much older generations that all live in us and that we can tap into and that we can um, learn about and be really proud of. Like going back to the conversation or the thing that you brought up around around pride, you know, what does it look like to be in our full dignity? Um, in our full dignity, like what does it look like to really love ourselves? You know, this 500-year like assault on our dignity has had devastating effects and why would we have the ability to see someone else's humanity you know i'm not black but you know and a lot of my family members all my family members are not black but like can you see someone else's humanity if you can't even be in touch with yours Mm. and i think that is a really key key thing that we have to begin to work on ourselves and with our people whatever your role is whether you're a therapist or you're a healer whether you're just the brother or sister or daughter or whoever of, you know, a family member. And so bringing back those memories and then being, having a project of living your full dignity, we have whole generations that haven't. Um, And I've, I have memories that are really deep of my own parents and my own grandparents not being able to really step fully into their dignity for a lot of reasons. Right. And so I I I just want to kind of affirm what you were saying and 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 also what this you know podcast is also trying to do in some ways or another the conversations that we've been having um but yeah and so then that goes back to I think the question of the woke stuff which is like all of those things that we just said are the reasons why we cannot shame ourselves and our families into authentic pro-indigeneity and authentic pro-blackness like shame is such a it is it literally is a um oppressive tool and an oppressive thing that we have embodied for many generations and legacy of colonialism and so what does it look like to build authentic pro-indigeneity and pro-blackness in us and our families and saying call out your family member just isn't it or call out the organization that's right now trying to lift up, you know, um, a pro Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, message or really standing in solidarity or acknowledging its own blackness, right? Um, shame. If you cover anything in shame, it's just it's it's not going to be authentic, and it actually can do more harm than good. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of. Um shame is is kind of co-pilot on a lot of the performances that are happening on social media and in terms of people like yeah i i think there's just been an an an, an intellectualizing um and like an academic uh like an, almost like an am- academic interrogation of community organizing and movements that I think has at times been a disservice Um, because, you know, if you're talking about like organizing and not, if you're talking about mass organizing, it is imperative to keep the lights on for people that you got to keep the lights on for the people that are coming forth and not just because they're younger, but also because they're getting it later. And that all of us that consider ourselves people of conscious started somewhere. And we probably didn't start where we are now. We didn't start finished. We didn't start with the right words. We didn't start with the right analysis. Sometimes it starts with just the feeling in your gut that something's not right. Sometimes it starts from a punch in your gut because you get in fucked up, whatever the reason may be. Um, mass movements, community organizing, social movements have to keep the lights on. They have to keep the door open for those that are coming forth. And you never know. You never know when the next freedom fighter is is signing up. 
Um, but sometimes the, then the, the culture, the movement culture becomes, there's like, then like this is, I think sometimes an unnecessary tension between the need to kind of hold a political line or create a safe space, which I, I don't believe that we can do that, but that's for another conversation. But then those two things become in conflict with one another. Um, and I think that um, we are not, yeah, I, I, I think that those things can be contradictory, but I don't think they have to be intention. And I think that movements and organizations have historically dealt with this. Um, but I think there's sometimes like an undue level of like, yeah, expectation. And so then, it, and then you, you kind of then infuse, like, then people are then performing. Look how, look how this I am. Look how that I am. And so then that's wrought with shame. And then when people are, are kind of being flagged for not, you know, doing shit the right way, um, then that, that also, that the, the mechanism is shame as well. Um, and, and just to say, like, I want to also be clear that I am not saying, um, let people talk any kind of which way or let people treat each other any kind of which way. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't think it has to be one or the other where everything goes or like, you know, you have to be, you know, a pure, you know, completely finished, you know, manifesto of a person to participate in movement. I just don't see how we do ourselves a service. I don't see how we're going to win. And um, looking at what the situation is we're facing around us, mass crises, like multiple crises, um, climate change, like we can't afford to be fucking around, you know? So I kind of was like, I was like really thinking about this piece around shame and thinking a lot about like Latinx folks who, you know, I, I think really are wanting to be on the right side and really are trying to figure out how to do this shit and like how to show up in the right way. Um, and I don't know. So I, you know, you, and you kind of inspired me to really, interrogate this question of shame and so I was preparing for this combo um a while back and I was like shame 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 okay 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 what's the opposite of shame and then you know I either <laughs> you know being being as thorough <laughs> as I am I was like I'm gonna google it so I go what's the opposite of shaming you know what came out was pride and I was like huh and so two things came to mind one was because I was also thinking about white people <laughs> and like thinking about how much shame also like, cause I was actually thinking about like, woo, like, you know, white people probably, you know, white people, you just kind of see how white people react when you talk about slavery or you talk about you know, things like right now, like policing and just they, you know, the police are um, the enforcers of white supremacy. And and so then, like, what do white people tend to do? Is like, that wasn't me. Like, why are you blaming me for my, you know, that was my, I don't even know who I come from. What you talking about? I didn't, my family not from the South. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. Or like that again. You want to talk about that again? So then as, you know, my little Googling mm, yeah. of shame, it's like, you know, shame is fostered by secrecy. Um, it's fostered by silence and it's fostered by judgment, right? And so then I was like, all these people are swimming around feeling like they're on blast. And so some people that's, that's going to be very uncomfortable. So when I saw the pride, I was like, huh, is this an indicator? Could this, you know, I'm not a researcher or whatever, but like looking at the cataclysmic, the catalytic growth of white nationalists or white pride organizing in this country, like, could we understand that one of the reasons, like in terms of an emotional, spiritual, social level is that, and I think it's important to talk about these things because we need to understand these fools are organizing. And again, there's the, the policies and the politics that they're organizing, but there's the emotional and spiritual side as well. And so like they are offering an alternative, like you don't have to be ashamed. You can have pride. And that is dangerous. <laughs> That's fucking mm -hmm. scary. Um, and so then I also thought about, you know, different points, different movements of oppressed people who say, you know, who also say pride. 
right? Um, I know like that proud, being proud, right? Um, whether you're talking about, um, yeah, I mean, you can go, there's obvious examples there. And so it also made me be like, huh, you know, like for, for oppressed, because I'm, I'm not equating, um, <laughs> I'm not equating like, for example, brown pride with, you know, white nationalism to be clear. <laughs> but, um, because, because, and the reason why I'm not is because when, when you've been stepped on and, and told that you are of the people that lost, like sometimes that's the, that's what you can hold on to, to pull yourself out of that, out of that quicksand. Right. And we, we need something to hold on to. And yes, feeling like, yes, you know, black is beautiful. I, I am out and proud. Like those things are, are righteous and needed and necessary. So to be clear, I'm not equating them, but, um, I kept Googling. So then I said, okay, well, pride. Okay. We know the opposite. What is the antidote to shame? Chicka, chicka, you know, started doing that. And what came <laughs> out was empathy. And I sat back and I just like, I thought about it for a second and I was like, yeah, you know, um, and, and so then it really kind of started for me, just like, what is like for, for people who have been stepped on, people who have been oppressed, people who come from lineage that have been erased or sought to be erased, um, you know, what is the mixture, right? Of, 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 of retomando, like re retaking our feeling of self-worth and that pride is a part of that but also like empathy. And so, you know, just as an example, for me, it was like, okay, this help, this is helpful, right? Because like with mi gente, you know, it's been, it started to just be like way on me because we, we've been really leading around, like leading with the message around policing and its impact on black bodies. And we've very explicitly done that and not taking the approach of like, we care about policing because it's happening to us too. Um, it's been, we care about this issue because right. we give a fuck about black bodies. We give a fuck about black lives. We, and, and, and not because it's just over there because we are also black. We are also like, there are, there are people in our community who are black. We care, like, you know, like, but it's been very much like, we care about this on the basis of that. It doesn't have to be happening to us, right? And that's how we've done. And then over the last few weeks, it's just been like a succession of incidents of um, of brown folks getting killed. And and I I started to be like, what do we do? You know, because I don't want to I don't want to like push out this thing of like, oh well, look, it's happening to us too. Look at us, look at us. And I don't want that to be the impression. And these people, these people have families, they have names, they have lives and their lives are gone. And they're, they're, they've been taken at the hands of police. And so when I read that, I was like, yeah, like we are trying to foster and model empathy, political empathy, community to community empathy. Like we need to show up and feel it for um, black folks that have been killed. And, and we need to show up and feel it for people um, who are non-black who have been killed and and then thinking at it from a campaign level, it's like there is a point where we has to we have to also start talking about interests, like speaking to people's interests. But I think the first step and the fundamental step and the thing we have to continually model is the question of empathy. Um, and what is it? What are the ways in organizing and in the self work we all do to foster that empathy? Put yourself in someone else's shoes, right? Um, is 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 yeah like. Yeah, that's that's that shit that's gonna shine the light on that shame for sure. Um, and so yeah, I've just been like, you know, kind of like <laughs> in my spare moments, just like, what's that? What's that? What's that mixture? What's that mixology of for for people um, who are battling shame for different reasons? Whether it's because we are ashamed because we don't know where we come from, we are ashamed because we don't know because we feel like we lost or we've been told that we're shit um, or we're ashamed because we haven't been on the right side all the time. Right. What is the mix of like dignity and pride um, that is necessary to, to pull ourselves out 
of whatever hole we've been dug into, thrown into. Mm -hmm. And then what is the empathy that we need to show others in our community and other communities, the, the vecinos, the vecinas, the primos, the siblings, the cousins, that that is necessary to them be able to work together and fight together and build together in ways that go beyond campaigns and go beyond policies and go beyond flashpoints and go beyond performances on social media. I think that that is the experimentation of this moment. And that's why I also think it is so important for us to be able to extend grace to each other as we try to figure that out. Because that is the intention, to figure it out and to figure it out together. Yes, to all of that. And I, it just made me think of how, you know, we wonder like this whole concept of decolonizing. And I've looked it up. I've been also like geeking out on who first put it out, how it came about what's you know how it's looked in throughout latin america and there's been a lot of it put out by black nationalists like fanon mm. <laughs> was my favorite yeah. oh. and then also who was a who was a psychotherapist um for real and a revolutionary yep <laughs> he was trained in mental health uh so that's i'm like that makes sense that's why you would say some shit like that because you're studying the human mind and how it what it's about like what people are embodying and so with that being said i feel like you know can we make empathy a radical practice can we make empathy something that we practice daily and get practiced in uh, for ourselves and then with others. And I had a good conversation with my friend, Mark Anthony Johnson, a couple of days ago. Mm. And I felt really clear because he said, when I have conflict and movement, I like to deal with it in relationship versus with tactics. And that like, it moved me because, and we were talking about a specific conflict with somebody that's like, politically for the most part aligned it, not obviously the liberals and the politicos and corporations and the mainstream groups that try to be opportunistic and undercut us and you know we're literally talking about like if i know you're my comrade and if i know we mostly agree and if i believe in some of the work you're doing like how do i deal with that conflict and so anyway it just kind of brought that up uh reminding me of like if we want to really be in our values around wanting to do away with erasure, wanting to remember, wanting to sit and stand fully in our dignity and pride, and then also wanting to transform ourselves and, and our peoples and society, then can we begin to radically practice empathy? And like you said, the only way to... um undo certain practices is to start practicing others mm -hmm. <laughs> other things so yeah i just i want to say thank you for being on on the podcast finally <laughs> uh, i'm glad we got to have this conversation and i'm also really excited about the piece that you and i started talking about last weekend that i do hope we can put this out um with this conversation that we're having around literally where to begin. And I think there's even some more stuff that we can extrapolate from this conversation that we had that we can add to it um, as an offering in this moment, because the other thing that happens is in this performing performative, I think that's the word you use, you know, there are these flashpoint moments where like we had the last three weeks and then a lot of, a lot goes dormant. And so the real work begins after the flashpoint moment where it's like, okay, we've identified these dynamics. We've had this level of self-awareness and these broader spiritual questions that came up for, I think, a lot of us. How do we begin to do this work um, now while nobody's, no, while nobody's looking? <laughs> while, you know, this isn't the big conversation in the media or in, in movement, you know, so that little by little, bit by bit, in practice daily, um, both from building curriculum to um, engaging in like real tactics in the world and then and then where the real work begins in the streets, in communities that have been fighting police violence and that have been wanting to defund police, but also trying to organize our people 
and, um, you know, towards that. Um, and also the radical imagination of like, how do we imagine a world without punishment um, that isn't like shaped by a white supremacist system? Uh, now that that's a real question for a lot of the cities and a lot of the movements across the country. So I'm excited about that conversation. I'm excited about the continued conversation we're going to have as Latinx people in this movement and also as mi gente. Um, and I invite, you know, those that listen to this podcast to also be a part of it. Thank you, Marisa. Thank you. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, edited by Lourdes Hernandez. Music is by Rafael Maya. Find us on social media at La Cura Podcast and at Con Mi Gente, C-O-N-M-I-J-E-N-T-E. Please rate us, subscribe so that you are notified as soon as the newest episode drops and share your favorite episodes with your friends. Baba la woo.